Wonderful. Okay. We have a very special guest. I've known this guest for a few years. We've been connected on LinkedIn. We've spoken many times, but we missed the opportunity to meet when I went to Amsterdam, unfortunately. Uh, but this is a good chance to catch up uh, with all this mess. Uh, it is, of course, Dr. Cyril Windershoven. He is a Middle East security and energy specialist. He is also the global head of strategy and risk at the Barry Commodities Fund and owner at the Veracity Consultancy. So let's just paint a quick picture, Cyril, about what's happening. We have WTAI crude at $13 and some change a barrel. We have Brent crude at $21 and some change a barrel. We have the beginning of the holy month of Ramadan. Without the influx into, uh, into Saudi Arabia, they're missing out on their tourist money and income from yep. there. With that, we have a global pandemic, which is constricting world trade. Yep. Could you have imagined such a situation even six months ago? No. no. <laughs> Simple answer. No. <laughs> no. Um, it's, if there is anyone in the world that is even implying that he would have been able, he or she would have been able to foresee this um, six m- months ago, then I would doubt the analysis um, that there were already strategies and assessments what would happen in case of a global issue such as virus. Yes, but that was a doomsday scenario which has not really been taken into account by anyone. And if you even would have said six, seven weeks ago that oil prices would go minus 30, minus $45 per barrel in the US, most people would have asked if you are still a little bit sane. Yeah, Um, you may need a doctor. Yeah, price settings of 10 or 6 US dollars, that could have been assessed. Some indicated even after the OPEC plus G20 meeting that things would go fast, but minus 30, that's Mm -hmm. an exception. And it's purely focused on the US. WTI is... The US index, yeah. yeah. It's a US, uh, yeah, West Text Intermediate. Yeah. But don't you think, though, Cyril, that if any profession should really understand what the future holds, it's finance, economics, and oil. Because if you have the perfect storm, geopolitics is maybe a bit different because there's a lot of unknown unknowns. But in the world of finance, you have oversupply and such sharp low demand already. Yeah. What did they think would actually happen in such a case? Um, it's increasingly strange that yes that finance and oil and gas these are two sectors that should understand that things really can go Mm -hmm. the main issue is that when we look at history the one sector that has ever been assessing it wrong was the finance sector Mm -hmm. it's almost incomprehensible for them i think to understand that things really can go bust Mm -hmm. even worse than they are seeing in their excel sheets or in their algorithm Mm -hmm. and also because they do not believe that things can go worse than what history has been showing them Mm -hmm. 
what they should always keep in mind. Finance, economics, it's not a beta science. One plus one is always two, yeah? Mm -hmm. But if you take a certain change in a financial market and in the oil market, and then combine it with two other factors, mm -hmm. a virus which no one has been looking at, and the fact they are not including the fact that geopolitics mm -hmm. is most of the times a much larger factor. So the human factor, it's mm -hmm. not in the algorithm. Humans will always do things that you shouldn't have been doing when looking back at what you did. The so-called crisis between uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Russian President Vladimir Putin could have been expected, could have even been assessed beforehand mm -hmm. because it was not a marriage, it was a bromance. It was mm -hmm. as long as things were to the mutual benefit of both, things mm -hmm. would happen as expected. But if you will take a Russian grandmaster chess approach to an Arab Tawila approach of a young crown prince, you can get sometimes things that are unexpected. And the optimism that still was in the market up till OPEC plus C20, I was still seeing from most financial analysts from the Goldman Sachs, etc. Yes, prices will go down, but we will see a reaction upwards. Mm -hmm. In the whole market, if you mm -hmm. were looking at the total market, there mm -hmm. was no single reason to be optimistic if there is a demand destruction of 25 to 30 million mm -hmm. barrels per day. Mm -hmm. The market will go up mm -hmm. if you cut 9 million barrels per day. If mm -hmm. you even cut 20, then it's still 5 to 10 million barrels per day that need to go into storage. Storage, yeah. Stuff. Yeah. And when physics, when things are full, filled in more. You can't cheat physics for sure. But this it's makes me think about something, though, Cyril. What I'm trying to understand, and this is some things that I've been, I've been looking at, is that do you think that the oversupply in the first place, the fact that Russia and Saudi Arabia couldn't come to an agreement, was that a pre-planned thing? They said, we're going to flood the markets so we can push American shale out of business? Or was it something that they legitimately didn't agree upon? Because if they didn't agree, why would any of them benefit from such oil, low oil prices? There must have been a payoff for them in some case, or am I mistaken? There were two things. The first thing is the bluff of Vladimir Putin was called by the Saudis, mm -hmm. which Russia, I think, honestly did not expect that if Russia would not comply or support the new proposal of OPEC, that Saudi would then do the utmost mm -hmm. for the unexpected thing not to cut even more, no, to flood the market. Mm -hmm. So hit Russia also. The second factor is, because that is what the market did not expect really. The second still underlying red line in everything that the Russians and Saudi and the UAE is doing 
is to regain market share. Since the emergence of U.S. shale, OPEC plus Russia has lost share. Mm -hmm. yeah? So that was whatever happens, that was still the ultimate goal, not to kill U.S. shale, because honestly, whatever happens, U.S. shale will not be that U.S. shale as on life support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when there is some extra room again, U.S. shale, some of the U.S. shale will be again there. Mm -hmm. What now is in the so-called so-called Russian OPEC price war or Russian Saudi price war, both still understood that whatever they were doing. The ultimate effect was the goal they would have been saying years ago, to bring down a part of U.S. share. Mm -hmm. At the same time, and maybe that I'm wrong, but at the same time, they opened up the possibility that they could do what the U.S. president, Donald Trump, was asking for. Mm -hmm. First thing, he always had been asking, bring oil prices down because that's good for the U.S. Yeah? Now, they flooded the market extra. Prices went totally bizarre. And then the reaction of Trump was cut production. Okay? They cut production. Mm -hmm. But in the end, they did not cut production. They removed the additional volumes they had put on the market. Yeah to give them their own option to cut production. So they said yes to Donald Trump twice. Yeah. And getting see that the other non-OPEC oil needed to cut even more. Yeah. Because by flooding the market, the pressure is being put on non-OPEC, US shale, Canada, North Sea, yeah. bring down their production, and believe that there are enough oil and gas and military strategists in certain advisories in the Arab world that mm -hmm. knew before that Kashin is the central piece in U.S. shale future. If that is blocked, U.S. shale is blocked, then the only option then is bring production down. And looking then at the financial situation U.S. shale already was in, since two, three years, some of them will never come back mm -hmm. and some of them will be brought up by maybe potential adversaries that are not U.S. based, but outside of the U.S. Yeah. But do you think there's one thing that shale oil is, as you said, on life support, but many non-offshore uh, oil rigs have also needed yeah. to cut back on spending. So it's not only... Yeah. American oil, but it's probably even uh, offshore Australian oil or in the region too. There's a lot of offshore drilling that has gone south. Yeah. OPEC isn't just Saudi Arabia. OPEC plus isn't just Saudi Arabia and the rich GCC nations and Russia. You have many poorer nations which rely yeah. on a high oil price as a fiscal break, even to be above, let's say, $80, yeah. $100 even. In some yeah. cases, like Iran, a barrel. This, this uh, oil commotion isn't only hurting American shale, but it's hurting many OPEC producers which rely on high oil prices to maintain a fiscal break-even. But speaking about this, how much do you think the Middle East and Saudi Arabia listen to the U.S. now, as opposed to maybe 20 years ago? What are the main reasons as to why 
Mohammed bin Salman would listen to Trump on anything to do with oil, seeing as America is supposedly self-sufficient and Saudi Arabia can flood the market as much as it wants and still be able to survive. What's a, a quid pro quo in this, in this situation? No, no, um, the, the question you pose is interesting because is Mohammed bin Salman listening to Donald Trump? At present, he seems to be listening. Mm -hmm. But by listening to Donald Trump, he is able to support one of his own strategies. Increase the position of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Aramco, as a main power broker in the oil and gas sector, and showing the world that U.S. energy independence is a fata morgana. It has never been the case, and it never will be the case, mm -hmm. except maybe when the oil era started and nobody was even looking somewhere else for oil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at this moment, he has, he, Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir have been able to show the world, yes, America was becoming the largest oil producer, was becoming extremely strong in oil exports and in gas exports. But with one strategic move, they have brought it to its knees. U.S. energy independence is not a reality. You even could argue U.S. shale has been able to grow by the support of the Russians and OPEC. Mm -hmm. Because the only ones that have been cutting the last couple of years to stabilize the price mm -hmm. was OPEC. They kept the price so high that U.S. shale was able to grow. Yeah. Which, in the end, in the end, I think, is a very normal way in the American liberal free market approach that if you are the one that is growing then for the last years and your market share is increasing now if it needs to be cut by all then also you need to cut and if that's due to your own wrong approach to your own oil and gas infrastructure is hitting you harder than the rest of the world, yeah, that's an additional advantage for the rest of the world. Yeah. So to say that Russia and Saudi is listening to Donald Trump, I think that's an overestimation of the position that Trump holds in the oil and gas market. Yeah. It's not that the U.S. was and will be very important for the Arab world, for Arab oil producers. Yes, for sure. But that's also related to security and the fact that the most strongest and the most up-to-date oil field services companies are still U.S.-based. Yeah, Halliburton, uh, Baker Hughes, uh, NOV, mm -hmm. they are U.S.-based. Mm -hmm. they, yeah, so so they are needed. Yeah. Where people maybe should have a look at is that the current situation is opening up other value proposition for the NOCs because you do the fact that oil field services like offshore rigs, they have become extremely cheap mm. right now. Mm. Share prices down. Debt levels are high, yeah. profit margins are down, 
If I would have a multi-billion sovereign wealth funds, I would say do not put it now in in Uber or in Zoom or in whatever. Or Newcastle United, as the case in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but buy up these companies that you need for your future. Yeah. But surely, why would they do that? Because this, I'm going to jump into this in the, to this topic next, but I'll give it a bit of a flavor now. Surely the main MO of the Middle East, and especially the GCC, is to wean themselves off of oil income and to diversify their economy. Why would they put more money yeah. into offshore and other, other things which, because of arbitrage, are a lot cheaper now to buy up? Surely you use that money and invest in other things. But right now, with the world being the way it is, you can't. So what is the incentive to buy cheap offshore oil rigs and invest even more money into oil and into your GDP and your income being pegged to oil yeah. and not diversify further? That's something else we're going to jump into, but that's just a, a yeah. thought. Maybe you can answer later. But a second part of the geopolitical puzzle is Russia's impact in the Middle East. And they've had different yeah. relations with countries in the Middle East, not only the business relation and oil relation they have with Saudi Arabia for the military intervention and the military support that they've been providing in, in Syria and also in, um, in, in Libya also. It's obvious to see why these kinds of nations would like Russian support. You know, they hold a position yeah. in the UN Security Council as a permanent member. They can be a great voice for them in UN matters. They provide military hard power to, uh, to nations that need it. Typically, nations like this don't really need a democratic flag waving and soft power support by nations. They, they don't need that kind of support or else they'll go to, uh, you know, the Americans or, or to their European, you know, colleagues, I guess. Yeah. So Russia provides exactly what these nations need in the Middle East, given the relations that they've had with the, I don't know if you'd call it the, uh, the cold relations they've had recently with Saudi Arabia. Will Russia now reanalyze how they approach different relations in the Middle East or will they continue to work with Saudi the way they have? It's interesting because I'm seeing a lot of analysis now that the love between Vladimir Putin and Mohammed bin Salman is, is over yeah. and Russia needs to reassess its position in the region, etc. In reality, I think not a hell of a lot has changed. Um, okay. The position of Russia has grown. The position of Russia has become stronger the last years, mm -hmm. even as some were thinking then when Mr. Trump became president that every GCC country would again look at the new light in Washington. Russia steadily increased its position in Syria, in Saudi, in the UAE, in Bahrain, in Egypt. In Libya, the main issue is, is there more than oil and gas as a basis for a Russian-Arab cooperation? Russia is interested in having a say in OPEC. Russia is very interested to get their own oil and gas companies in the region, Iraq, Gazprom is talking to Saudi Aramco, uh, the UAE, Egypt is clear, yeah, it's Rosneft, but oil and gas is only something. Russian 
defense and security cooperation with the pro-Western GCC Arab countries exist, is growing, but the quality of most of the Russian systems is not yet at the same level as what they can get from the US, from France, from the UK and England and Italy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there, yes, there is an increase in Russian influence, but the overwhelming majority is still Western. Mm -hmm. The main and interesting option will be, is there an option for Russia to become involved in the economic diversification of the region? Mm. Oil and gas is clear, but does Russia have something that is interesting for the Arab world, for Saudi, for the UAE, for Egypt, on which they can build their economic diversification, aka to wean themselves off from oil? Yeah. Technology, Russian technology, even that we do not think about, but I've seen loads of things being developed in Moscow and Saratov, etc., which are high quality, which like are high quality. The main issue is they don't look good. Russian products uh, the, the, the don't look good. Yeah, yeah, they don't have a good reputation. Yeah, yeah. But if you can tweak that, that's a real opportunity for the Arab world if they are interested. So what kinds of things exactly do Russia produce apart from oil and gas that you think the GCC nations can take advantage of if, if their PR were to be made more yeah. you know, attractive? AI, AI, computer science, defense, technology related things, aerospace, satellites, IT systems, if you look how many Russian speaking experts are working for what we then think are Western systems, you could be shocked. Yeah. Um, new developments in medical systems, etc. Mm -hmm. I'll go to Moscow, go to Moscow University and see the world around these institutes they are booming mm -hmm. the problem is they do not know how to sell it mm -hmm. but if you are able to say okay i have the cash i need it i will bring you to neom yeah? mm -hmm. yeah? where there isn't anything yet yeah and put you there i give you a, a nice house a nice uh, villa and all the cash you need that is a very interesting option mm -hmm. like what the israelis did one of the main fellows of their economic growth the last 10 years were russian jews mm -hmm. okay and the arab world is more than able to forget that a russian is a jew they just say he's russian and then you also can live there and work there and be advisor to i do not know whom yeah mm -hmm. uh, that, that's 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 easy russia needs to reassess its options and see what can they do more than bringing the hot mm -hmm. power which arab regime likes because yeah. it comes without drinks without yeah. call for 
human rights and democracy, etc. But there is more than that. And if Russia is not able to deliver more than that, its position in the end could be again being undermined because the Western ones and China are able to provide more than that. Exactly. I was going to say that the Americans provide a certain power that Russia doesn't have and China provides the mass market where oil is sold to. Russia sits somewhere in between. I think yeah. would you agree with the statement that Russia is perhaps a more opportunistic power in the Middle East and they take advantage where there's power gaps and there's vacuums of power and they fill that with sort of hard power and, and specific specific uh, aid. Not They don't branch out too much in what they offer. Yeah. They, don't, they, they, don't, yeah. they, they don't try to upsell or cross-sell no. any other services or products they, they they keep to what they're good at and they and they are known for that yeah, but that's also to the advantage right now of the russians you know what you will have yeah if you're a friend with the russians you will get whatever you need or in a certain sector yeah 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 for the rest russia is inward looking they, 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 they it's strange but they should branch out yeah and then then it would be uh, very interesting yeah probably well china it's not yet a hard power uh, okay sneakily sneakily they are becoming it sneakily but they are not going into the Middle East yet and say, look, whatever happens, we will support ruler X. Yeah. The Russians are. I think China is much more pragmatic. They just want to make sure oil flows at reasonable prices. They want everyone to work together. They don't want any trouble with uh, Qatar and Saudi or Bahrain with anyone. They no. just want no. functionally no. the oil to flow safely to the Strait of Hormuz, no. get to their location. Yeah. No keep it peaceful they have no interest to intervene militarily diplomatically or otherwise yeah. with any conflict there do you think I'm russia could play a role I'm within let's say in yemen i know yemen they've the saudi now because of oil prices being so low and the pandemic they're as quickly as possible trying to stop the fighting in yemen do you see russia playing a role in helping that or exacerbating the problems or the uh, the conflict there given their good relations with iran as well do they have any reason to be involved with Saudi Arabia and them in? I think that Vladimir is smart enough to know, keep your hands out of Yemen. Mm-hmm. Because it's and Saudi and the UAE and Iran and everybody that is not officially there, but is there. Yemen is like Afghanistan. No one has ever entered or left Yemen without having two black eyes and a bloody nose. (laughs) You should stay out of it. If, okay, if there is an Arab leader that loves Trump, then build a wall around Yemen. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, look, Yemen, it's beautiful. Mm. Yemenites are open, friendly, but any country that is in a mountainous area, you know, don't start a war with these people. Uh, That's why Switzerland did not get invaded. That's why Afghanistan, you cannot rule it. Every Arab 
nation has been trying to get a foot into Yemen. Saudi, Egypt, huh? yeah, Iran, UAE, everybody. Yeah. You, they all will leave with a bloody nose mm. and you do not gain anything. Mm. I guess you, the only reason why Saudi want is because they can have that buffer zone against Iran. If they, if they have... Uh, if they have control or if they have some sort of influence over Yemen, that, uh, that proxy that Iran provides is, a, is no longer a major threat. Maybe, maybe sometimes, sometimes um, when a military answer is not working, mm -hmm. why are you not buying them off? But do you think now, if we move to the economic side of, of uh, the equation, we have a situation now where we mentioned oil prices are historically the lowest that they've ever been. They've gone into the minus for the first time in history. Demand is very low. Income to the GCC is very low, but GCC relied on oil income to form the basis of their vision, 2030, 2045, 2025, and different, different GCC nations have their different deadlines for their visions. Given that now, I'd say that these visions have now become sort of mirages. They're no longer as viable financially as they were before. Big projects like Neom, are put on the back burner. There's two things here that I want to talk about. Firstly, do you see this having a threat to the monarchies of the Middle East if they can't provide for their people like they did before? They, I think the people of the Middle East, or at least the GCC, have become quite accepting of uh, inflated oil, not inflated, but sort of high oil prices, and they lived a good life, and the civil service has ballooned to exorbitant amounts. They haven't really had to deal with the day-to-day -day functioning of taxes and, you know, a nation functioning off of non-specific oil money. Now that this has perhaps come to an end, do you see the people now, or at least the nations of the GCC, needing to form new social contracts with their people to say life is going to change? And will there be sort of perhaps an Arab Spring 2.0 in these places because of such oil prices? At the very extreme, but there's obviously a continuum of this. And secondly, how will they find their new USP? Because right now, the USP of the Middle East, or at least the GCC, has been oil. What new USP can they come up with now that oil income is not going to form the basis of development? Okay, that's, that's, it's founded as it's going to be one question, but it's a long... Yes, it's a two-part, a two-part... Uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, first of all, what I always try to address if people are saying due to lower oil prices all the so-called Saudi vision 2030s etc will be ended at least postponed postponed I sometimes like to be the devil's advocate mm -hmm. any good economic diversification plan needs an economic crisis because otherwise there is no incentive in a society such as in the GCC mm -hmm. to change. Mm -hmm. Higher oil prices are a nail in the coffin of a Saudi Vision 2030. Mm -hmm. Because when higher oil prices are there, people are getting used to the fact there is no need to change. Because lazy, everything yeah. is able to be done. Mm -hmm. Looking back when all of these strategies were introduced, there was a low oil price. Mm -hmm. Subsidies were removed due to the fact there was a low oil price. Mm -hmm. They were not able to pay anymore what they were used to. 
So I would even say this could be a godsend or a message of Allah yeah. Yeah, that change is needed yeah. and that it maybe will have a negative effect on some of the giga projects or other high profile projects in the region. I do not even know if that's a very bad thing. It is now supporting the effect A. Economic diversification is needed. It mm -hmm. has been now shown in the last five to eight years. Oil shocks will happen. Oil revenues are not stable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And we need to change. And maybe the main issue that people should be looking at right now, are we changing the right things? Are we not going for things that in light of what is happening right now is not going to bring us the amount of work and income that we are thinking of? Yeah, Because Kredia, etc. in Saudi, expects an influx of tourists. Mm -hmm. There are no tourists. No tourists. There are no flights. There exactly. is So that's a risky investment. Yes? Changing salary structures, introducing things of women in society, that's needed. Mm -hmm. Change of certain productive sectors, it's needed. Mm -hmm. Neom I think Neom maybe not the grand scale project that was shown in 2017 at FII, but a Neom, an Arab Silicon Valley. Yes, of course, do it. Yeah. Now, lower income, price shocks, etc. If you do not have any other option, mm -hmm. will force a regime to reassess its link to its society, to its, its people. population. Yeah? 100%. The social contract is already being changed. The social contract will need to be changed more. Will it go as quick as we as analysts hope or think it's necessary? No, because what has changed between now and 15 years ago is that the Arab world has access to the global financial market. Mm -hmm. If there is a financial crunch, yes, you can put part on a lower revenues, you can use your sovereign wealth funds, your foreign reserves, but also you can go to London and issue a bond issue and get your 27 billion. And that's almost for free. Mm -hmm. And that if you look at most Arab Gulf oil producing countries are not Italy or Greece or the US. Yeah? They do not have the same government debt levels as we are thinking of. The real government debt levels are maybe even extremely low mm -hmm. to even look at their gold reserves yeah so there is still time to reassess this situation and to 
discuss a possible new social contract. Mm-hmm. However, you also know that certain regimes will not be happy to have their social contract being changed. Mm-hmm. Maybe the most easiest social contract you can change in most oil and gas producing countries is that you change the social contract with inside of the royal family. If you have more than 15,000 princes, which get a certain amount of money every month, yeah. also can say, if we now, first of all, because that's the smart move. First of all, we address the issue of the royal family or the royal group. Yeah. Yeah. Because what is the royal family? Is that the nephew of the nephew of the nephew? Or is that just, yeah? Yeah. The rest you can address. And then yeah. this buffer to possible changes you need to make later on for the rest of society. But if mm-hmm. you keep the upper layer in place and do nothing and change it for the other ones, you also create issues. Are you saying that because if if you don't change the upper echelons of the hierarchy, then those perhaps lower down will say, hey, why are we being impacted and the higher guys are being impacted, which will cause conflict. So at least you skim, you skim the top, make it more adjustable, and then you can justify changes in the rest of the population. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it's okay. And I do not agree with all that the Saudi conference is doing, but when he addressed this issue after FII 2017, Mm -hmm. when he stated, Look, we are going to change Saudi and corruption, which is in the whole region, we are going to address. Now, everybody was thinking he's going to start with the poor little shop owner in a very small village in Saudi mm-hmm. who comes from India. Yeah? No. He took straight away, he took the top 50 or the top 100 in his own society and put them in the reds and saying look most corruption is not below it's on our level mm-hmm. even in the royal family mm-hmm. so if you keep doing that at least and you can see this in saudi at least you get the support of the young people mm-hmm. where the total crisis is a major issue for is the future of the young Mm -hmm. it's not the future of people of my age yeah we we can okay the future of the ones between 18 to 30 is being decided right now they will graduate they will need to get a job and there are no jobs in oil and gas that's it capital-intensive, but not labor-intensive mm-hmm. sector. And they need to create jobs. And that should not any be more that you go to a government office, you get a chair and a desk, yeah. you can read your newspaper yeah. and go home at one o'clock and say, I'm tired. No. And that's why I even say it's a very good thing for the region that the oil price is low you need to change everything becomes fluid under pressure 
What do you think are going to be some of the stumbling blocks for the GCC when it comes time to transitioning out of, as a, I don't know, let's call it more a, a passive form of living to a more active form of, uh, of living? What, you're, you're going to see pushback from perhaps, you know, the guys and girls who have benefited the most, who have gotten jobs yeah. in, in the oil yeah. ministries or in the civil servant, which have gotten hey. living an easy life. But do you think this will cause even labor from, from India and, I don't know, the Philippines to... Will, will we see more influx of labor or less influx of labor? What will be the other um, circumstances of this? I think that, okay, on the labor issue, we already see that there are more planes were flying out to bring people back to Asia than the, they were getting them from India or so. Mm. But I would say if you want to see the stumble blocks that the GCC economic diversification will have, look at France. Okay. Try to change something in France. Try to change the pension age, which is, for me, it's almost the same as creating a French rentier state. You know, at 55, I can stop working. Yeah, 55. Yeah, not 60. Seven, no, 55. That's more or less the same as I know I'm going to get a job from the government. Yeah. yeah. Now, even in a very well clear economic situation in Europe, you will have these issues. In the GCC, you will have the same issue. The advantage that GCC countries have, especially Saudi, has there are not so many jobs in government that were even able to cope to get them a job for all the young people that are streaming out of school. They need to have three to six million jobs extra. There are no six million jobs in government, mm -hmm. not even in Saudi. Yeah. So you need to create things, expand things, and where economically the main issue is, it's maybe not even education, it's the fact they do not have a small and medium enterprise sector. You either have the extremely small ones, where you see a hundred thousand of, all selling or doing the same things. There are more mobile shops in Saudi than the people that have mobiles. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Small and medium enterprise, which is always the main economic backbone of a good run economical sector in Holland, in England, in France, in the US. It's yeah. a small and medium enterprise. There yeah. are none. Yeah. It's either the family offices, the big families that have been used that they will earn money because their client, the government or Saudi Aramco will take them. They're not used to rationally yeah. to address future challenges because that's what they were not used to. And there is no room plus financing for smaller ones, the ones that do innovation that will bring the, the jobs big, Companies are not bringing you the jobs. 
the overwhelming majority in, in Europe and in the US mm -hmm. is working in smaller ones. Yeah. Between uh, five to 150 employees. But that's also a mindset. Yeah. Because then you are not working for the, the Apples. Yeah. Or the IBMs or Ubers or yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. No, working for a, a smaller one. Mm. I see what you mean. If we take the conversation, because I think typically when I hear people speak about the Middle East, they they veer towards the GCC, and even within the GCC, they veer towards speaking mostly about Saudi Arabia. So if we try to open up the conversation and include other yeah. other nations, and before we get there, in terms of how the situation of the pandemic and low oil prices have affected you know adjoining countries yeah. to, let's say, Saudi or the GCC, we mentioned, we touched on sort of immigrant labor from from uh, India, Pakistan, the Philippines, all these guys now have had to go back to their home nations, which now income from, from uh, remittances have gone down sharply. So the, the, yeah. those nations' GDPs have also gone down as a result. If we then take the situation and say, I think if I were to answer the question of which is the most riskiest nation now in the Middle East, I'd say probably Iraq, because they have already a angry population due to the corruption there low oil prices has, have, have impacted their economy to the point where they can't sustain it with oil money like, let's say, the GCC can. So people are protesting on the streets. There's corruption in government. Um, any other exports can't go anywhere because no one wants them. Yeah. We find if this spreads to other nations, we may find, uh, again, like we saw uh, it, a few years ago, a mass exodus out of these nations into Europe, a more prosperous Europe. But they, they come with now not with the uh, imaginary threat of terrorists being in well, these groups, but now we have the real, real threat of having infected people coming into Europe, which may cause even more populism to occur in Europe and also strain yeah. on these nations' resources yeah. and healthcare systems and also people's actual uh, wanting to have immigrants come in. Before, perhaps there was a, at least in some quarters in Germany where Merkel said, bring them in. Now they're sort of let's test them, but we can't test them because we can't even test yeah, yeah. our own people. So we have all that, that dynamic playing out. Also other nations in the Middle East, oil isn't their only export. They have other exports, which, which they can't export now because there's no demand anywhere. So they have, they're, they're sitting on, on exports where they can't sell, which is putting a strain on their own economies. The worst thing you, you can have in the GCC is angry, angry, unemployed young males because they're the ones who typically come out and <laughs> protest. So that's, Phil, that's the case in most of the countries in the Maghreb or the Levant. Speaking about other nations, apart from the GCC, do you see the situation playing out in any positive yeah. light? Are there any, any, because we all see the negatives. We see those in the, in the middle class becoming poorer, those who are already become, yeah. becoming destitute. You know, yeah. once these people become poor, they can't snap back into employment because the infrastructure of, of, of these country, companies won't be there anymore. So it'll be a slow recovery. I think that V-shaped recovery is, is, is a fallacy, especially in such... Uh, weak economies as in the Middle East, but are there any silver linings to this? Are there any positives, any things that you can say they can rely on or anything to be hopeful about in, in, the, in these places? <laughs> Is that, okay, first of all, um, let's go back to what you said. The main countries that are going to be under pressure in 2020, 2021, and then I'm not looking at, at Saudi or Qatar or the yeah. UAE. And that's 
Iraq for sure. And I think a country like Egypt, Iraq, just because of its still reliance on oil and gas exports, the internal turmoil, the possible build-up of a crisis again with the Kurdish region, yeah. and then the all always hanging overhanging possibility that Iraq is going to be a battlefield between the U.S. and Iran. Yeah. Mm. Now this does not bode well for Iraq, and at this moment, I honestly do not see any any extreme reality that could improve the situation in 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 2021, 2022, it will depend a on what is going on in in the region, and second of all, what is oil and gas going to do? Mm-hmm. If oil and gas is going to reasonably increase, let's say to 30, 35, or 40, yeah. there is again an interest to address issues in Iraq. At this moment, Iraq is an issue. Yeah. And the oil and gas price level does not make it an interesting issue. Yeah? Where there is a still under-assessed risk, that's on the other side of the GC. Mm-hmm. Egypt. They are hit on every single level that you can get hit. 100%. Yeah, that's the virus is blocking trade. That's yeah. the Suez Canal. Yeah? The virus is blocking tourism. That's a major income generator of Egypt. The virus has destructed oil and gas uh, demand in the world, so has hit investments in the Middle East, so has hit the labor force that is mainly made up of Egyptians. So the income generation of expat Egyptians in the Gulf has gone down. Mm -hmm. And then Egypt is an oil and gas producer. So it is being hit also there. Mm -hmm. So, and then if there is one country that is growing its population, then it's Egypt. And we all still forget there is still a tendency in Egyptian society that is not very happy with the situation at this moment. Mm-hmm. And if you can call it Ikhwan al-Muslimin or Daesh or whatever, it's still there. Yeah. yeah. So all of that makes it a very unstable situation, mm-hmm. which can become very unstable if we leave it to simmer without acting or it can improve but everything at this moment is blocked due to the fact that we have this virus and there is no interaction yeah even immigration or illegal immigration or refugees yeah all blocked because the borders are closed. Whatever you say, and that is what Erdogan has seen, his threat was hitting a brick wall. His threat, I will open the the 
of health for for Europe. Europe, you have yeah. two three million refugees. Yeah. They did not get in. So the valve that could release some of the pressure that is building up in the region mm-hmm. has been closed at this moment. So so from going out of the region and finding a, a possible more secure future in time of an economic crisis is now blocked. So mm-hmm. the pressure in some of these countries, and then I'm not talking about Saudi or the UAE, but Iraq, Egypt, Jordan. Yeah. 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 The pressure in society mm-hmm. is heating up yeah. because the income is gone. They're all commodity-driven economies, so if they don't have any buyers for their commodities, then it's game over. Yeah, yeah. Game over, and, especially and, if it lasts another three, four months, let alone a year, forget about it. I think we're going to see political turmoil. Uh, either they stay if, and, and, and have a revolution, or they leave and find better opportunities. But either way, they're going to find it difficult. Um, if this continues up till the end of 2020, we will be talking about it and we will think okay our doomsday scenarios we had are not even real yeah doomsday scenarios anymore yeah Yeah. but do you think then in this case if you look at the wider picture what's gonna end up happening is that all of these nations because we have egypt which hasn't transformed its economy as much as it needs to and even smaller nations which rely on commodities, if they can't get their income, what they're going to end up doing is lining up at the door of the IMF, looking for balance of payments uh, bailouts from IMF. Yeah. If the IMF yeah. can't afford to pay everyone yeah. out, then that undermines you know, these institutions that were created by the US. What, what, what kind, because right now, if we, if we look at the super macro, because we have the macro in terms of seeing these nations, but the super macro in terms of seeing the institutions after World War II, uh, America stepped in and, and, and bankrolled European reconstruction yeah. and also to an extent Russian uh, infrastructure development and the so forth. So these institutions of, of the IMF, the World Bank, the UN even were created post this crisis, post World War II. These institutions recently haven't been getting you know, the support, the major support from the US as they need to. So what role will they play in helping the world in this crisis? Because we have an influx of nations needing so much support that if the US institutions or the IMF and the World Bank aren't there, then will they either go into more chaos or will then China somehow find an opportunity with their Belt and Road Initiative to then find a way to keep them alive, but for a big price? Um, Does the US have a responsibility to stretch even more to help them? Because if they don't, as the saying goes, if a plane crashes those in first class and those in economy all die you know so it's not a case that you can survive without the global economy <coughs> no. so do they need to save them or how can they save them and if they don't save them will this leave a gap for um, for china's um, coming let's just say um the plane is not crashing i think that the the motors of the plane have fallen out yeah but we're still f- uh, flying or maybe in free fall? Well, I hope, I hope yes. But the financial system in theory is made up to counter the issues that we are seeing right now. However, the system has not been set up that a crisis will occur 
in every single country at the same time. Exactly. Yeah? Now, on the other hand, that's also an advantage. And that's again me being the devil's advocate. Okay. If every, everyone is in the same situation, then that becomes also fluid. Then nobody will or should really obstruct the issuance of debt or printing of US dollars into the market because it's for all. Everybody at this moment will increase government debt. Yeah. Everyone. There is not one single country that is not having to do this. Mm-hmm. Now, that means if you do it for all, it has the same effect for all mm-hmm. in the end. And to leave it to one single party, yeah, and look, I'm not anti-China, but as a Dutchman, I have seen how countries can be pushed by a big friend at that moment, the US, US Marshall. US Marshall plan, yeah. Yeah, we were forced to, let's say, do things that normally we would not have been doing, aka we gave away Indonesia, because otherwise we would not get it, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you will put this system in exactly the same position, but then in the hands of China, I think you will have the same pressure by the Chinese to do like what they would like to have. I would say then my hope is more focused on the IMF and the World Bank or the ECB or whatever Mm -hmm. than on Chinese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In a crisis like this, the main issue that we should be focusing on is that we, due to the pressure that is on all of us, and that's on Europe, but also on the Arab world and on others, that we forget to assess the links that you will have to the party that will finance you. Mm -hmm. Um, To get strings attached because you're in a dire need. Well, at this moment, we still do not know what will be the effect of the lockdown, etc. Yes, Mm -hmm. we are making assessments. Excel sheets and algorithms are working 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what will happen when the lockdown globally is over? Mm. We don't know. V-shape recovery, I don't think so. Me neither. No. Me neither. Uh, it will be it will be an L shape. Yeah. 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 And maybe an L shape which is a very long yeah. Yeah? because we do not know the negative impact of the current financial stimuli after that they are ended. Yeah? Also given the fact that soon enough countries will need to raise taxes because they can't they can't sustain it. They can, oh. they can only borrow so much and there's no way that uh, this but, won't but, bite us back in the future. In the end for the Arab world, the demand for oil 
will grow from the moment that we are not anymore in the lockdown. But then we will grow from the level that we are right now. And if that is enough to counter the excess oil that we have been taught, that Mm. is the long L. How sharp will it be? Mm. They will need to cope with the fact that their income will be lower in 2020, 2021, 2022 than what anybody was expecting in January 2020. Yeah, yeah. Imagine in February, I was talking on the streets in the bar with people about Corona in China. And we were having a drink together. (laughs) Nobody, nobody was thinking about the fact that two, three weeks later, we would be confined to our house yeah yeah very unpredictable optimism any crisis we have been able to cope it yeah the issue is okay how long is it going to take and is there anything else that you think is worth mentioning for the audience that relates to the middle east are there any topics that at least you can touch on quickly that we haven't covered that you think are worth mentioning quickly I would say, do not do not underestimate the resilience of the regimes that are at present in place. Mm-hmm. Most of the oil producers are definitely not gonna go broke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, national oils do not go broke. It's their owners that are having a financial issue, but the mm-hmm. oil is not gonna go broke. Instability instability will increase that's for sure but also in the region there will be winners and there will be losers mm-hmm. and the losers are that are linked to oil and gas but do not have enough oil and gas to weather the storm or are linked to it but do not have oil and gas and maybe we we should be focusing more on the half knots than the half that have maybe for a short period not as much interesting yeah so and if people want to contact you cyril are there any websites have you got a yes, platforms yes, do you use you can, you, use you can find it on linkedin of course yeah. you can cyril, find it on www.ferosi.com you yeah. can find it of course, on oil and gas on www.barrycommodities.com or otherwise the most easiest one, use Google. Use Google, exactly. Google, Google <laughs> is your mother now. You ask Google for everything. <laughs> exactly, wonderful. So I, for the last time, Dr. Cyril Winterschoven, thank you so much. This will go up very, very soon. I'm sure everyone will enjoy it immensely. Thank you.